Good evening, everyone. Uh, keep your Bibles open at that bit that we just read. Um, it's a quite a quite a full-on little passage that we're going to look at now. So let's let's pray and ask that God will give us insight into what this means. Father God, we know that you are powerful. Um, Father, we know that you are the source of all truth and goodness. Father, we thank you for your word that we've just read. Please now give us understanding um, and please give us um, the, the grace and the motivation to respond to your word. Let us not, Lord, be... Uh, people who hear your word but don't do it because we know that that leads to death. Lord, let us be people who hear your word and act upon it and turn to you uh, because we know that in you there is life. Um, We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I I have this chocolate bar here. Um, Owen... Owen saw this chocolate bar and he thought that he could see a quiz coming up. Um, I don't know, I I was thinking maybe it might just pep me up in the middle of the sermon. But if you must, we'll uh, we'll do a quiz. So, all systems go. Can anybody tell me, who is this man? Not just his name, tell me something about him. The chocolate bar is on the line. Going, oh, yes, absolutely. Correct answer. Can someone deliver this? <laughs> Vidkun Quisling. He was. He was a politician, he was Defence Minister of Norway in the early 1930s, but by the end of that decade, he'd kind of become a bit of a B-grade politician. Uh, He's most famous, as we've just heard, for being a traitor. When Germany invaded Norway in 1940, the King of Norway resisted the German invasion. But Quisling uh, and his minor party led a military coup and he was installed as president in a government that was friendly with the Nazis. After the war, he was arrested, he was put on trial, and he was executed by firing squad. Uh, Not a very popular guy these days. Well, last week in Malachi, uh, we looked at God's dispute with the priests. And in this passage that we've just read, the, the, the attention of the prophet turns, broadens to the common people, uh, particularly the men. And I'm not sure if you noticed, there's a word that, uh, that comes up several times in this passage, or, or, or a phrase. Um, I think it comes up five times. Um, in, in this version here, it says in verse 11, Judah has broken faith. In verse 10, breaking faith. Uh, well, what does verse 10 say? Let's, let's start off. Have we not all one father? Now, that, that could be God. Probably more likely it's talking about Abraham 
the, the father of the Jewish race. Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another? Uh, he's saying that they've got a common ancestry, that they've got a common religion, they should be loyal to one another. They should all be pulling in the same direction. Uh, but there's something that they're doing that's undermining that. This, this, this covenant that unites them as one nation under God uh, is, being, is being marred by unfaithfulness, by breaking faith. Th- this word can also be translated as uh, disloyalty, treachery, the act of a traitor, a double-crosser, a quizzling. Uh, so there's, there's two things we're going to look at tonight in particular from this passage, two examples of treachery, of breaking faith. And both of these two examples have to do with marriage. So the first one comes in verse 11. And the problem here is intermarriage. Verse 11, Judah has broken faith. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves. How have they done that? By marrying the daughter of a foreign god. So the people of Judah are marrying women from these other nations that live around them and amongst them. And you say, what's wrong with that? Well, I think the key thing here is is that it's not sort of a, a, a racist thing, but that these women worship a foreign god. And there's a real danger that is being, uh, that's being exposed here, is that those who marry idol worshippers may compromise their loyalty to the true god. When you marry someone... You become so close. You become, uh, the Bible talks about becoming one flesh. Um, I, I can think of ideas that Susie and I have had about things that bit by bit over the years, our views on so many subjects have blended together. Um, on a whole lot of issues, I've changed my viewpoint. On a whole lot of issues, she's changed hers. Um, Susie's taught me that there is a value in art for art's sake. Um, <laughs> I've taught her that clothes only need to be ironed in times of dire necessity. (laughs) But we're really thankful that when it comes to wanting to live for God and follow his word, it hasn't been a tug of war. It hasn't been that one or the other of us has had to give way, but we've both been focused on that as best we can from the start. So Malachi's argument is these mixed marriages will lead the Israelites into participating in in the sphere of idolatry while at the same time they're they're continuing to enter his holy temple. Um, Verse 12, God makes it clear that no, it's not acceptable to mix these two things. It's not acceptable to go to Baal's temple one day and then go to the Lord's temple and bring an offering the next day. God wants an exclusive relationship with his people. He says, no, no, you've got to be in or out. There's no place for pluralism. There's no place for many paths to God. 
And verse 12 says, whoever you are, as for the man who does this, whoever he may be, even if Malachi is a brave guy, he's saying, I don't care who you are, even if you are the town leader, you have no place in God's temple if you hold divided loyalty. I want to look at two other places in the Bible where this issue um, is addressed. The, the first one is in the history of Israel, long before the time of Malachi. And it's in Numbers chapter 25, verses 1 to 3. So, while Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality. So, so we've got a, we're, we're going to see a process here. The first thing is that there's sexual union with the Moabite women, and then we've got the next progression is who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. So they're not doing anything. They've just been invited along as observers. And the people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. Now they're participating. And it says, So Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor. Um, that word yoked. I've got a picture. The yoke. See that bit of wood between the shoulders of the two cows that kind of ties them together so, so, so that their, their, their direction and their destiny is bound up together. That's the description of, of what happened when the Israelites got together with these Moabite women. That, 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 they're, they're tied up together. Now I want to have a look at another reference and this is from the New Testament. And, uh, and we'll see how this is applied within a Christian environment. Uh, do you notice the same language as from Numbers? Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? What fellowship can light have with darkness? We've got these, these opposites. Um, what agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Um, so you notice here, once we're in the, the New Testament, the ethnic element of it has been removed completely. Um, there, there is, while in the Old Testament, um, God was working with a particular group of people. And, and, and people from other nations did come in and join and, and worship and become Jewish, but, but they had to become Jewish. Um, in, in the New Testament, that ethnic element is removed completely, but we still have this principle. Don't be tied up together, a believer and an unbeliever. So, looking at all of you, particularly young people, um, here's a warning, here's a really practical warning. Be careful who you allow yourself to fall in love with. Um, if, if, if you fall in love with someone, your, your, your reasoning, your justification, your thinking um, will find a way to, to make yourself think, oh, no, no, it's okay. Um, if you start dating a non-Christian, think about the very real danger that you're putting yourself in. And I've seen this personally with some of my friends that I went to school with, that I went to youth group with, um, who met up with some lovely people who didn't know Jesus. And what I've seen, sadly, in the majority of those cases is, bit by bit, these friends first stopped going to church and then stopped reading their Bibles and eventually, after months, sometimes years, 
stopped calling themselves Christians. Um, they're still fine, upstanding citizens. I'm not saying they've kind of turned into horrible axe murderers. But the thing is, these people that I, I went to, to Sunday school with and we, we were, I thought we were excited about Jesus together, now I just don't know where they are with God. Um, some people come back with, no, no, but look, this, this person, I know that, you know, they're, they're, they're close, they're interested. If I date them, then I can bring them along to church and maybe they'll become Christians. Um, well, if they're interested, good. Tell them about Jesus. Bring them to church. Let them become Christians. Um, and, and then after that, when they're, when they're living their life for Jesus, you know that you can get together with them and you guys will be two bulls pulling in the same direction. So that's, uh, that's our, first, uh, our first lesson. The first example of treachery from the book of Malachi. The second one deals with the treachery of divorce. Now, is it, uh, it's a bit hard to know exactly what he's talking about. Is it that these Israelites are marrying foreign women and sending away their original Jewish wives because of that? Or is he talking to another group of people who are, who, who are divorcing? It's, it's not quite clear. It's, when we're reading Malachi, most of the time we're kind of listening to one half of the phone call. But whatever exactly is happening, there are some things that we can see pretty clearly here. And the first one that we're going to see is that a problem with your wife is talking to men, but everybody else apply it in the appropriate way. A problem with your wife is also a problem with God. Look at verse 13. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. Okay, so, so he's talking to people. They're religious. They haven't given up on going to the temple and all of that. In fact, they're, they're, they're passionately religious. There's tears, there's emotional outpouring. They've got fervent worship that puts our, us Presbyterians with hands in pockets to shame. But God says, you know what? I don't care about your offerings. I don't accept them. Verse 14, why? It's because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth, because you have broken faith, there's that word, you have, you, you have been treacherous with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. So it describes, it describes her as the wife of your marriage covenant. What does it mean that marriage is a covenant? Uh, it, mean, it means that First, it's obviously more than just a union of convenience. It, it's more than just a partnership that we get into so that I'm getting what I want, you, you get what you want. Um, no, no, it means it, it's a relationship of, of the same kind as God's relationship with his people. It's a relationship that exists on the basis of promises and of commitment now, God said from the beginning, I am absolutely committed to saving you, even at great cost to myself, even if it means sending my only begotten son. 
Um, so I reckon those words that come up in the wedding vows are, are a great description of covenant marriage. That you know, I will what is I will stay faithful to you in sickness and in health, for richer or for poorer, as long as we both shall live. You know what I mean? That is commitment. Despite the situations, I remain committed. And this is saying, when we make these promises in marriage, it's not just between two parties. It's not just the man and his wife. That God is a part of this as a third party, as a witness. And so again, those traditional words really bring out the theology of this, where it's the dearly beloved, we are gathered here today in the sight of God and these witnesses. Um, so, so to break our marriage vows is to break a promise we make before God, a, a promise not only to our wives, but to God. Now think for a moment, imagine a man who, who is lying and, and cheating on his wife and she knows about it, but you know he, he kind of comes around and tries to be all romantic and lovey-dovey and... Um, but, but she knows he's cheating. Now, if she has any strength of character, she won't accept that. She'll say, now, come on, get real. And, and this is kind of what God's doing here. God says, you can be as, as, as religious as you like. You can be as passionate as you like in church. But if you aren't keeping those promises you made in my sight, what is it? It's fake. You're behaving like a traitor. Um, there's this verse in, in 1 Peter. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. Treat them with respect as the weaker partner, as heirs with you in the gracious gift of life. What does that last bit say? So that nothing will hinder your prayers. A problem with your wife is also a problem with God. Second thing, uh, a problem with your wife is also a problem for your children. Uh, Journal of the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry did some research on the effects of divorce on children and found that six years after uh, a marriage breakup, um, that in general these children tended to be lonely, unhappy, anxious, insecure. Uh, the Journal of Early Adolescence says that children of divorce are four times more likely to report problems with peers and friends. Uh, another journal says people who come from broken homes are almost twice as likely to attempt suicide. And you can you look up, there's stat after stat after stat. And I think the point is obvious. Look at uh, verse 15. Has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit they are his. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. Um, Simple question. If, 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 if part, an important part of what this is all about is godly offspring, then of course uh, divorce is very damaging to that hope. A final thing in this section. A problem with your wife is also a problem for your wife. Uh, as a husband, we read that in, in 1 Peter, your job is to nurture and to protect and to, to cherish. What did it say in verse uh, 16? I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as with his garment. Um, 
It's the wording, the way the language exists here, it's saying what you're supposed to be doing is you're supposed to be kind of wrapping your blanket around your wife to cherish and keep her warm and close and feel loved. But of course, if you divorce her, if you send her away, you're not doing any of that. In fact, it's just like an act of violence. If you go back on your promises and cease to serve her with your life, it's like emotional wife-beating. And I think, I think that really is fairly obvious. I think whether you're a Christian or not, you can see the kind of impact and the kind of problem that divorce is. In Australia, we have a huge divorce rate. Um, it's interesting. I, I went and looked up the, the stats to see our divorce rate. Today, actually, the divorce rate is going down. Now, I don't precisely know what the re- reason is that. I think people are, are realising and, and, and experiencing um, how harmful it is. Well, we're actually at the lowest uh, divorce rate since 1975 when, um, the, under the Whitlam government, they changed the, the law to permit no-fault divorce. So that's good. Let's keep it going down and let's lead the way as Christians. Because divorce is harmful to kids, it's harmful to women, it's harmful to men, and it's offensive to God. Um, Before I move on, can I just add a disclaimer? Um, I'm not saying here that there aren't exceptional circumstances um, which might allow for a divorce, whether it's abuse or sexual cheating or something like that. Remember in our New Testament reading, Jesus did say, no, no, there are certain legitimate grounds for divorce, um, but maybe they're questions for another time. Maybe that's something, something to, uh, to chat over the coffee later on. The thrust of this passage is saying, no, no, don't go there. Don't go there if there's not an absolutely compelling and necessary reason. Uh, it finishes up. Actually, this, this uh, is mentioned twice. It's mentioned in verse 15 and at the end of verse 16, a really wise command. It says, guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. Do not commit treachery. Um, guard, watch yourself. When there are problems in your marriage, don't focus on what the other person needs to change. You can't change the other person. You can't modify your spouse's behaviour. Uh, only they can do that. But you can watch yourself. And you need to examine yourself. I need to examine myself. We, we cannot let our, our own commitments to our marriages drift. We can't allow ourselves to entertain fantasies or allow bitterness to grow up. And so this week, married people, take some time for self-reflection. Remember your covenant. Renew your commitment. Before we finish, one more thing. I think some of you thought maybe, oh, the sermon's over. But there's one actually really important thing that we haven't addressed yet. Um, Because so far, I've brought out that this is a warning about traps to avoid, especially for young people. And it is. 
But I don't know that primarily the message is be careful that you don't do bad things. I mean, that is part of the message. But who is it primarily talking to? Who is Malachi primarily preaching to? Isn't he actually talking to those who have done it? Maybe some of you, as you're sitting here tonight and listening, and you're thinking, yeah, I've really made a mess of marriage. What does this have to say to you? Does it, does it make you feel awkward? Um, I mean, I, I much prefer preaching on the, the happy and the uplifting passages of the Bible. But I've tried not to pull any punches tonight because I think Malachi is going in pretty hard. He's saying, hey, hey, you, you are in dire straits. You are up the creek and God wants you to know that your situation is serious. But also think, why? Why did God raise the issue? Why did God go to the effort of sending Malachi along to these people and telling them? Why did he not just turn his back and leave them to go their own way to destruction? Isn't it so that they can take notice of their situation and act? I think tonight God is telling us this so that we can turn to him and ask for forgiveness. Turn over the page uh, for a moment to chapter 3, verse 17. Uh, this This is looking forward. Looking forward to the day when God will act. They will be mine, says the Lord Almighty, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. I will spare them, just as in compassion a man spares his son who serves him. Um, yeah, God, God is, seri- is, is dead serious about saying this kind of behaviour is not on but he's also wanting the people to turn back to him out of compassion so that he can spare his children. Um, Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Surely the day is coming, it will burn like a furnace. Remember our memory verse, man is destined to die once and then to face judgment. Terrible thing if you're on the wrong side. But, verse 2, For you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. If you don't listen to judgment, if you do turn back to God, there is a day of healing. Uh, Turn turn over with me. My next page says the New Testament. And after that, the story of the sun of righteousness who God sent into the world. His name is Jesus. And he he was willing to befriend and accept all kinds of people who had done all kinds of screwed up things. Jesus welcomed prostitutes and saved them. And so I I think it's really important to see that, yeah, this, this is a strong word that Malachi has. But it's not just a warning. It's not just, oh, don't do bad things. No, this is a call. Wake up, repent, turn to God. Um, If this is you tonight, turn to Jesus. 
He will forgive you. He will heal you in your brokenness. He will make you right with God in a way that all of that religious stuff that the people were trying to do and the going to church and crying and giving offerings, they couldn't, they did not make peace with God. But Jesus does. And God's telling you this bad news so that you grab a hold of the good news. Turn to Jesus and live. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, um, I thank you for these hard words of Malachi. Um, I pray that as a husband, you will give me the grace um, and for everyone here, that you will give us all the grace uh, to be faithful in our marriages, to be faithful in all our relationships with one another. Father God, forgive us for our sins. Uh, Make us grab onto Jesus because, Father, we know that in him is life and healing. Amen.